Hello, world. Ralph Blumenthal was a reporter for the New York Times for 45 years, where he worked as an investigative journalist and crime reporter. He's also written seven books based on investigative crime and reporting on cultural history. His latest book, The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack, is the first biography of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Harvard psychiatrist John E. Mack who risked his esteemed career in psychology to investigate the stupefying accounts of human abductions by aliens. Nothing in Mack's four decades of psychiatry had prepared him for the otherworldly accounts of a cross-section of humanity, including young children who reported being taken against their wills by alien beings. Based on Ralph's exclusive access to John Mack's archives, journals, psychiatric notes and interviews with his families and closest associates. He reveals the life and work of a man who explored the deepest of scientific conundrums and further leads us to the hidden dimensions and alternative realities that captivated Mac until the end of his life. This is a good one, folks. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Please welcome Ralph Blumenthal. Thank you for doing this, Ralph. I, I really appreciate it. I uh, just finished watching the uh, UFO documentary on Showtime, and uh, you made right. a, a few appearances in there. I did. Really, really great documentary. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I wasn't responsible for it, but um, I liked the part uh, where they used me, and uh, I don't subscribe to all of it. I think there were some sketchy things in there, but Really, um, which is true of the whole UFO field. I mean, it's uh, uh, you know to pick and choose, but I, I try to keep it on a, a you know a level comporting with reality. Let's say, which part specifically about the about the uh, documentary are you referring? Well, to? there were some references to uh, you know U.S. government working with aliens and <laughs> a secret base, um, things like that. I think are uh, kind of uh, w- way off. Right, right, right. Yeah, there, there is quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit of varying theories about what's going on when you sort of dive into that world. Um, so briefly, why don't you, for the people listening who aren't familiar with you, uh, if you wouldn't mind, give me sort of a brief background on who you are and uh, what your background is with your okay. career and everything. Um, well, I spent my whole career at the New York Times. Um, and, uh, I was very well grounded in, uh, in this reality, let's say I covered, uh, stories from the mafia, the world trade center bombings, including the first one, the truck bombing, which was a kind of a precursor of nine 11, although investigators never realized that, uh, till too late. Um, and I covered political corruption and, and politics and investigative pieces. So my, my background was not in UFO reporting at all. Um, and I got into the, the UFO story and John Mack through a series of circumstances I, I can go into. But um, um, I really had, had very little interest in the field until, uh, you know, very late in my career. What originally made you want to become an investigative reporter? Well, you know, every reporter uh, who goes into the field feels that he or she can, uh, you know, right wrongs, you know, as they say, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Uh, I always felt I could, uh, you know, make a difference by reporting. Uh, I think you can change the world in different ways. One is by, you know, political activism. Uh, another is by exposing the wrongs. 
And I found early on in journalism that uh, that was the best route for me. And I got a lot of satisfaction from it. And you did a lot of overseas work as right as well, right? Like in uh, Vietnam and other places. Right. Yeah, I covered the Vietnam War from uh, 69 to 71 and uh, the Cambodian War, which was part of that. And um, I was overseas before that in West Germany. Uh, so I had some foreign experience. Wow. How old were you at the time when you were doing that? 20s. Wow. <laughs> very, very young. <laughs> what was that uh, like? You know, in, well, in journalism, you, you know, you get your best assignments when you're when you know the least. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> when you're young and mobile, you don't have a family yet. You can move around quickly. So that's when you get your, your best assignments. Uh, later on, the, the more you learn, um, you are encumbered by, you know, your, your family life and other commitments and you have a home and things like that, that you have to, you'd have to sell. So little by little, the world closes around, uh, around you. But, um, so I had, you know, wonderful assignments early on in my career. I continued to have very good assignments, but my foreign work was really early on. Now, are you still with the New York times or. Are no, you... I retired in 2009 okay. uh, after 45 years, but I still was able to contribute, uh, including my most recent stories on UFOs, which we can talk about uh, that. Uh, I did those after I had left the staff, but continued to contribute. OK, OK. Now, in 2000, correct me if I'm wrong, but the first legitimate article to ever be re released by the new york times on ufos was 2017 is that right no 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 the times did a lot of reporting on ufos over the years so i definitely wouldn't call it the first legitimate article uh, <clears throat> you know the, the times has a long history um both covering this field and ignoring uh, certain things in this field uh, both but um if you go back into the archives the times was reporting on UFO incidents, you know, way back to Kenneth Arnold and, uh, and Roswell, of course, and, uh, you know, all the things that happened in the, in the 40s and the 50s, uh, you know, the 60s throughout history. Um, and um, uh, so I would definitely not call my, my article or our article because I collaborated with two fellow reporters, uh, the first, um, but it did open up um, some new avenues, let's say. It, it was a groundbreaking article uh, in the sense that uh, it, uh, well, it exposed this uh, unknown uh, unit of, of the Pentagon, ATIP, uh, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, which no one knew existed. And, um, and with the release of the uh, three Navy videos that came along, two and then three, um, that came along with that, um, I guess it, it kind of changed the tone or the paradigm uh, to suggest that uh, mainstream media what was taking this, this field seriously. Right. So the 2017 article for people who aren't familiar is the one where you, you talk or the videos or the radar videos were released uh, from the pilots who were operating the Super Hornet, the Super Hornet uh, fighter jets, <clears throat> and they uh captured the tic-tac craft that was right going at thousands of miles per hour which was estimated um, almost colliding with one of the super hornets at one point what was it yeah. about that article that made it so groundbreaking 
Well, first of all, we exposed the fact that the Pentagon uh, had been tracking UFOs, even though the government said it was out of the UFO business with Project Blue Book in 1970. Uh, so the government obviously has, has not been straightforward with us uh, throughout. Um, it said that um, uh, it clo closed the book, <laughs> Blue Book, on, on UFOs, you know, 50 years ago. Um, whereas uh, this uh, secret uh, unit, ATIP, was operating in the Pentagon, tracking UFOs and collecting information that started in 2007 under another name and continued, well, today it, continued, it continues to the present under another name. But um, so we, we revealed the fact that the government was continued continue to be interested in UFOs. That was that was interesting. Uh, we revealed that Lou Elizondo, the head of the program, uh, was resigning uh, in protest against the lack of support he was getting within the Pentagon. Um, and that was groundbreaking. And then to suggest that or to prove, to show in the videos that the Navy had actual physical evidence that these things existed um, uh, was was groundbreaking. I mean, you know, for a long time, people were dismissing UFOs as mental aberrations, uh, fly specks on the windshield, marsh gas, the planet Venus, <laughs> you know, you name it. Um, but, uh, you know, all the thousands of accounts by people, you know, throughout the, the years uh, certainly gave the lie to that, but the government never admitted it. Um, so now the government was saying, yes, we have a unit, you know, investigating UFOs and here are, you know, Navy videos. They weren't the whole videos. We only got parts of them, but what we, what we got was very interesting. So how did the article, like when you guys first began working on it, what were those conversations like? Okay. This is how it came about in, um, October, 2017, my colleague, Leslie Kane, uh, who was not at the New York Times, but was a preeminent or probably the preeminent UFO reporter, uh, investigative reporter who had written an excellent book in 2010 called uh, uh, UFOs, the generals and pilots that go on the record, um, which was a very, very uh, meticulous and well-grounded account of um, how other governments, particularly uh, in Europe and South America, were researching the UFO phenomenon. Anyway, she and I um, were in touch because um, she had been the companion of Bud, uh, Bud uh, Hopkins, uh, who had gotten John Mack interested in UFOs. And we'll go into that story down the line. But anyway, so Leslie and I had been in touch for, for some years. And in October, 2017, uh, she told me she had just attended a meeting in Washington with Lou Elizondo, who was quitting as head of this ATIP, that this organization existed, ATIP, that we didn't know about, and uh, that um, uh, we could probably get these, uh, she saw, and we could probably get these Navy videos of, of some of the encounters. So um, I realized this was big news. Uh, you know, we didn't know that this organization existed. Had been, you know, uh, Harry Reid, the then Senate Majority Leader, had gotten the funding for this. We told that story, and uh, so we took the story to the New York Times. Uh, I still knew a lot of editors there. I had left, as I said, in two thousand nine, but I still knew people there. And um, 
it was an easy sell. <laughs> the story about a secret Pentagon, you know, unit investigating UFOs and the director quits because he's not getting enough support. I mean, that's that's a no-brainer. Um, and I, I should say, Danny, that uh, we had all this on the record. Uh, we had no anonymous sources. We had the names of everybody we talked to. Um, all the officials were, you know, speaking uh, on the record. Um, we had the documentation. We had Lou Elizondo's resignation letter. Uh, we had an official comment from the Pentagon, which uh, another a colleague we worked with, Helene Cooper, Pentagon correspondent, had gotten from the Pentagon saying, yeah, this organization did exist. So we had this nailed down. So it was not a hard sell to the New York Times, and they put it on the front page on Sunday, December 17th. Um, so um, the rest is history. Wow. Were these pilots at all discouraged from talking about this kind of stuff for the first time? What what was your feel yeah. from them? I think they were wary. Uh, now they're not, by the way, because of you know the reporting that has since come out. But at the time, uh, there was a little reluctance to speak because traditionally, uh, pilots who reported these encounters, both commercial pilots and military pilots, were referred to the psychiatrist. Uh, they knew that it was a career killer to report these incidents, which, by the way, were common. Um, and um, but it wasn't um, sanctioned, let's say, um, and certainly not encouraged to report these encounters. Um, but as time went on and we followed up with some other stories, the, um, uh, the, the, you know, the Navy and the Air Force a little bit later uh, did encourage pilots to come forward. And now they say pilots, they want the pilots to come forward to uh, report these encounters because they, they need them for the, for the database. Now, like for example, in the UFO docuseries on Showtime, uh, Commander David Fravor talks about how after, uh, you know, after they told them about these things, they wanted to go check out and they come back after their flight. Um, they go back downstairs in the ship <clears throat> and there were some people there taking all the footage away. So obviously there's a well, lot more footage than. Yeah, there was an incident which um, we were made aware of that. Uh, um, um, personnel on the ship uh, told us that uh, unidentified military people uh, came on board afterwards and confiscated uh, the, uh, the data records, okay? Um, and to, as far as I know, that still remains unexplained, who those people were, why they took the database away? Did they know what was on it? Did they not want it to go further? It's just not known. I mean, you know, I want to say, Danny, that in our reporting at the New York Times um, and in my book on John Mack, uh, I've been very meticulous in not going beyond the information that I can verify. As you know, uh, there's a lot of crazy stories out there about uh, UFOs and aliens and encounters and uh, and uh, they're they're very interesting stories. But unless I can uh, confirm them uh, to the extent that at least I know who's telling them, 
what the circumstances are, et cetera. Um, I'm very wary of, of committing that to print. So I'm very, I'm very cautious. And right. uh, uh, I don't know what happened in that incident when they you know, confiscated the data. Uh, obviously, the data st still came out. So, you know, we have the video, we have the radar tracks. Um, so they didn't, they didn't uh, conceal the actual encounters. It was just some record that somebody wanted to have. But more than that, we, we don't know. Right. I mean, most of these conversations are, are just speculation, right? Other than what you can, what you can get from somebody as a matter I wouldn't of fact. Say, like from yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say most of speculation. I'd say that um, there's a lot of speculation, but there's also a lot of factual information there and people are coming forward. Uh, people on the, the ships, you know, radar operators and people uh, we've been in touch with a number of them, other pilots uh, who have spoken to us, you know, on the record. And um, so there, there's a lot of information. Do you give any merit to the idea that these crafts could be uh, some part of a part of some sort of secret defense program or secret military weapon program? Well, that was, a, you know, an immediate thought um, and, and a possible explanation. Uh, but that has been increasingly ruled out for the following reasons. First of all, it was pretty much. Uh, debunked in the latest uh, UAP report. You know, the Pentagon changed its um, uh, terminology from UFO to UAP, right. UFO being unidentified flying object, which was a term that was popularized in the, in the late 40s, um, along with flying saucers, um, which is totally out of use now, um, to what the Pentagon now calls unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP. So in the UAP report that came out in June, just this past June, they examined all the possibilities, uh, what, what, it, what these objects could be. And one of the thoughts was, well, maybe it's our own secret technology that, uh, you know, the pen, one hand of the Pentagon is trying to keep secret from the other hand, you know, um, or it could be foreign technology, China, Russia, you know, another earthly adversary. Um, First of all, the U.S. explanation has, has really been ruled out conclusively, I would say, because uh, everyone we have talked to on the record, off the record, says we do not, we, the U.S., do not possess this kind of technology. Uh, hypersonic speeds, ability to operate underwater. In some cases, these things have been seen entering and emerging from the water. Um, cloaking, you know, turning invisible, all the things that uh, go along with the, you know, the reporting of this phenomena, um, these phenomena um, rules out the fact that it could be American technology, aside from the fact that um, it's very, very, very unlikely we would be operating our own secret technology in military airspace where it could collide with one of our jets and cause a, cause a terrific scandal, uh, among other things. Um, same goes with foreign, um, you know, explanations. Um, nothing suggests, and everything to the, suggests to the contrary, that Russia or China or any other country on earth has this kind of technology. Um, so the answer to your question, long, long, long roundabout, is mm -hmm. no. Um, uh, nobody seriously suggests that this is our own technology um, that there's that they're seeing. Do you I mean, obviously, everyone 
who has any sort of familiarity with this space is familiar with the Bob Lazar story and his whole story about being invited to work at S4 and back engineer all these crafts, which he describes almost to the T to be what these Tic Tac objects are doing. <laughs> do you, what is your, what is your feeling or, or do you have any sort of opinions on his story and idea on, on what he talks about? Do you give any credibility to that? You know, Danny, I have not looked into the Bob Lazar story. I'm very familiar with it. Uh, it's a sensational story, to be sure. Uh, there's a lot of uh, very uh, provocative stories out there uh, told by people who have good credentials. Um, but I, I uh, you know, I, I, I have to say I have not checked that out myself. Um, uh, there have been a lot of stories that we looked into at the Times about um, uh, retrieved, um, you know, uh, craft that may have crashed and were retrieved that the government has possession of. Uh, we we got made a little headway into that story with our last story in the Times, suggesting that or, or stating that congressional committees were briefed on uh, some or shown briefing slides of some instances of retrieved crash materials. Okay. Uh, we didn't go beyond that. Uh, we didn't say, uh, you know, what had been determined from that, just that uh, Senate committee staff were briefed uh, on crash retrievals. That in itself is rather sensational, I would say. Mm. But um, to, to go to the next step and say that we have from, from these materials, if they exist, um, engineers and scientists have reconstructed spacecraft, uh, re, you know, reverse engineered them uh, is a big leap. <clears throat> and to say that uh, you'd, you'd really need the evidence. And um, I'm not aware of that evidence. So it may yet come out. Uh, but um, so to answer your question again, I, 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 I just don't have an opinion on Bob Lazar. I, it, it's certainly provocative and, and worth uh you know, looking into for sure. It just seems the media has been buzzing around this topic ever since your, ever since the 2017 article. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that article did anything to change the stigma revolving the subject? I think it did. Uh, we keep hearing that, that the article uh, showed that uh, the stigma uh, is not permanent, that, um, uh, the Times, you know, uh, faced up to the potential ridicule. There still is a giggle factor in this whole, you know, uh, subject, uh, which people in Congress are afraid to, uh, you know, subject themselves to. Um, but it showed that a serious newspaper can can deal with the subject in a, you know, mature and well-sourced way and suffer no consequences. On the contrary, uh, um, they, we were, uh, you know, lionized for, uh, you know, this sort of this groundbreaking story. So, um, uh, you know, I, I can't say, you know, we didn't suffer any consequences. It can be done if it's properly sourced. Um, and as I said, we always just stick to, to what we, what we know. We don't speculate on what we, by the way, we've never said that these UFOs are, alien spaceships. 
um, that, that is a, a conclusion that, that some people have drawn. And you might say it's the logical conclusion once you rule out all the other possibilities, okay? As Sherlock Holmes said, once you rule, once you rule out all the impossibilities, what remains is, is, is the possible and the reality. Uh, but we never said that. Uh, all we said was that, and I think this is a big, this is the big breakthrough, that these things do physically exist, okay? They have been caught on radar and there's images of them in FLIR, this thermal imaging technology from the gunship cameras. So um, uh, as I said, uh, this dispenses with the idea that these things are figments of the imagination. They're archetypes, you know, they're, you know, uh, natural phenomenon mischaracterized. No, they are physically real objects with uh, astounding, um, uh, you know, aerodynamics that we cannot explain, but they physically exist. So I think that's the biggest breakthrough since 2017. Did you have any sort of colleagues reach out to you after that were, had their feathers ruffled or did you get any sort of negative blowback about this from, from other colleagues or people in your field? No, uh, I, I would say no. I mean, we have a very, um, serious science section at the New York Times that, you know, looks over uh, the shoulders of anybody reporting on science and, you know, sort of make sure that uh, the Times standards are adhered to. Um, but um, I, I got to tell you, I, I got absolutely no, uh, you know, feedback, negative, particularly negative. I got a lot of positive feedback. Um, but no um, uh, complaints from any member of the staff that, you know, we maligned the New York Times. Or, you know, on the contrary, people were very interested. Okay, so when and how did you first become aware of John Mack? Okay, so in uh, 2004, I was still on the New York Times, and I was the Southwest correspondent based in Texas. Uh, in Houston, and somehow I picked up a copy of a book called Passport to the Cosmos, which is John Mack's second book. Um, and um, I'll tell you about John Mack in a minute, because uh, just keeping the chronology, I didn't know who John Mack really was when I picked up this book. And I saw he was a Harvard psychiatrist um, who had been gotten interested in the subject of uh, alien abductions or the stories that people uh, who consulted him uh, told him about encounters they, they felt certain they had had with, with alien beings. So he got interested in that field and he wrote two books. And as I said, this was the second book that I picked up. And I was immediately, um, yeah, as a journalist, uh, captivated by the, the idea of a a Harvard psychiatrist, and he was a very eminent psychiatrist indeed. I mean, he had won a Pulitzer Prize um, uh, for a biography of Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, he had founded uh, clinics for uh, uh, impoverished people, mental health clinics. He had, um, you know, worked on, he had uh, protested against nuclear weapons uh, because as a physician, he was concerned about the, you know, the fate of the planet all these things. So he was an interesting guy. And now he had written this book um, on uh, alien abduction and the stories people told him. 
So I thought as a journalist, he would make a good interview. Um, and I thought I would give him a call at Harvard and see if he, if I could interview him. Now, I didn't realize, uh, I, was, I was naive probably, <laughs> that he, uh, I certainly didn't know uh, he was as well known as he was. Um, as I said, he had won the Pulitzer Prize in, in uh, uh, 1976, a 77 Pulitzer Prize for book written earlier. Um, um, and he'd been all over TV with his first book called Abduction. He'd been on Oprah, he, you know, he'd been everywhere, he'd been in the New York Times, but I had missed it. So anyway, I thought, gee, I'll, I'll write a story about this guy. Um, and then I pick up the paper a few days later and I see he's dead. I mean, he was run down in London by a drunk driver. Um, he was there for a conference on Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, 30 years after his book had come out. And he was looking the wrong way down the street, which Americans tend to do in, in London. And, uh, and he, was, he was dead. So I couldn't interview him, obviously, but I, I did reach out to his family and it was not a great time for them. Obviously, my timing was poor. Uh, they were grieving. Um, but I let them know that I was very interested in his, uh, his overall story. And I kept in touch with the family, particularly his, his three sons. And, um, and uh, eventually, they granted me access to all his archives, uh, his therapy sessions, which he taped, I mean, his own therapy sessions, because he, as a psychiatrist, he needed to be analyzed. Uh, and he kept up with his own analysis uh, over the years and his private journals and his unpublished manuscripts and his tapes of every lecture he ever gave. Um, so I had access to a tremendous um, volume of material uh, plus interviews with the people close to him. I mean, his wife, Sally, was still alive. She died shortly afterwards of cancer. Um, colleagues, family members. Um, anyway, I, I, so I, I had access to a tremendous amount of material. Um, and that's what got me going on the book. Well, from everything that you drew from talking to his family and reading his work and, and watching his interviews, what, what kind of guy was, this, was he? From what you could do, well, he was very charismatic. He was mesmerizing. Um, he was tall, very good looking, uh, with a ruddy complexion, very tightly stretched skin. Um, he had a, a wonderful manner with people, which I guess is the mark of a good psychiatrist. He just got people to trust him and to talk to him. He was brilliant. I mean, his writing is is quite apart from, you know, the subject matter. Uh, and, you know, and what he was trying to convey, just his literary abilities, his gifts as a communicator uh, were extraordinary. He, he spoke beautifully in his lectures. Um, he was, you know, very intelligent. Uh, so he was a very commanding uh, figure. Um, you know, was he perfect? Uh, absolutely not. Um, um, he... Um, he had suffered a childhood trauma in that his mother died, his birth mother, when he was eight and a half months old. Uh, she died of appendicitis. And, um, and that affected him all his life. I mean, he was always searching for the missing uh, woman in his life, the missing mother. And he, so he had some affairs 
Uh, he was searching for uh, something he couldn't quite put his finger on. It found some um, outlet in his, you know, search for the for missing intelligence in the cosmos, perhaps. He said that himself. Um, so he had some girlfriends and uh, I interviewed them too, by the way. Um, and he was a little naive. He didn't understand how uh, revolutionary his claims were in the rather cloistered, uh, you know, uh, precincts of Harvard and got him into trouble at Harvard. Um, um, he wasn't cautious enough in some of his assessments, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, all in all, uh, a very uh, compelling figure and very well liked with, with really many, many friends. And, and yet, yeah, some enemies and people who thought he was a little too smug, a little too smart, um, and uh, a little too sure of himself. But all in all, uh, I found him a, a terrific subject and really worthy of, of the fir first full-length biography. Nobody had ever uh, written about him like this before. Now, was his first book the book on child psychology and nightmares? That was his first book, yes. Um, he... Um, um, he wrote a number of books, uh, one about nightmares, which, by the way, uh, um, really registered him as an expert on, on uh, nightmares. Um, because later on, people said, once he took up the alien abduction uh, phenomenon, people said, well, you don't understand, John. These people are just having nightmares. And he said, you know, in effect, he said, look, I wrote the book on nightmares. First of all, these people, not all these encounters were at night. Some of them were in broad daylight. People were driving or uh, one case on a snowmobile. Um, people were encountering, uh, having these experiences at all times of the day or night, not just at night. Um, so his interests were, uh, he ranged widely intellectually. Uh, it was only later in his life that he, uh, you know, came across the abduction thing. And, and like all of us who come across this subject, uh, he was blown away. I mean, he, how is this even possible that, you know, people are encountering, you know, alien beings? And, um, you know, the difference is we, we'll, you know, we'll encounter this subject and say, mm, that's interesting, you know, wow. But he decided um, he was going to, make it his career to investigate it. So he was he was very courageous. I think that's one of his uh, chief attributes. He didn't care what people were going to think. Uh, and he didn't care if he was risking his, um, you know, his professional reputation. He just thought it was a damn good story. And he was going to try to get to the bottom of it. Right. Now, he spent all that time studying nightmares and, and child psychology. Did he ever find any overlap in his studies of abduction or his his interactions with abductees, um, did he find any overlaps with those people and with his current knowledge of child psychology or or you know like night terrors with children? Okay, that's a very good question. Um, um, well, first of all, I should say that. Um, he basically concluded that um, the people who came to him with these stories, uh, many of them were, were troubled. Indeed, they were troubled, but they were troubled as the effect of the, of the experiences that they believed they had. They weren't 
making up the experiences because they were troubled. And that's a big distinction. Mm. So he said that the experiences that they had, um, in, in effect, caused their distress. Um, not that they, they were distressed and therefore they right. made up these experiences. So, for example, um, some people, some critics said later that, well, these people, some of them were uh, um, sexual abuse sufferers, women, let's say, um, who had trauma in their background, and they therefore concocted a story of uh, uh, you know, being examined by alien beings in, in, in sort of sexually intrusive ways, because some of these women recalled or seemed to recall um, their pregnancies removed by, by the aliens for reproductive purposes. There were a lot of these stories. Um, and he, he debunked that. He found absolutely no connection. Uh, he, certainly no reason to think that uh, any woman who had a sexual trauma was covering it up or, or explaining it through these abduction stories. No connection whatsoever. Um, um, again, um, these people that, that came to him with these stories were normal people. Normal in the sense that they had every, you know, um, troubling incident in their background that everybody has, you know, neglectful parents, alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, you know, they, these people lived in the world and they, you know, they were like everybody else. Um, but nothing that they had experienced explained these stories. That's what Mac was trying to establish, uh, that they didn't explain these experiences at all. And to add on to that, there was additionally, there was lots of young children Right. Well, that was a big factor in uh, the conclusion that he later adopted that these experiences were somehow real, that there was no other way to explain them. Now, in what reality they occurred or dimension, uh, Mac never could establish and it remains mysterious. But um, the reason he believed that these things actually occurred somehow as, as impossible as it is to imagine uh rested on on, on various uh, observations that he made but one of the more important ones was that uh, little children uh, in some cases as young as two or three were reporting these abduction experiences saying things like little man take me up in the sky i fly in the sky and so these kids could not be accused of picking this up from books they had read or movies they had seen they were barely able to speak. Uh, so that was, Mac found that very compelling, um, that these children would not really have a motive or an ability to, to make up uh, really these uh, astounding um, experiences. Um, but he had many reasons for coming to his conclusions. Another is that um, UFOs were uh, uh, cited by some of these people, many of these people, uh, around the time of their abduction experiences. It was often identified with or close to a UFO sighting. So they would remember later that they saw a UFO landing in their backyard or nearby, and then they had this experience, this abduction experiences. 
Sometimes there was evidence that the foliage had actually been disturbed outside the house. The tree branches were broken off, grass was disturbed. Um, um, and again, as I said, these people came from all walks of life. There was not any, any there was no pattern that explained mm. this, not a pattern at all that's, that would say that, oh yeah, these stories are coming from people like this. There was no um, uh, pattern at all uh, to uh, profile to these people. They came from all walks of life. They were professionals. They were blue collar people, men, women, old, young. Um, one of the distinguishing characteristics, by the way, was that uh, abduction experiences seemed to run in the family, that uh, often their parents and grandparents had reported experiences like these. And then the parents would say that, oh, my children are now coming to me telling me that they've had these experiences. So there, there seems to be, or Mac found that there was some um, correlation, some, some family uh, line running through these, these stories. Um, another thing that made a very powerful impression on him was that um, uh, on occasion, there were third parties uh, who were witnesses um, to some of these uh, encounters. For example, uh, he told of the story, he told the story of two girls who had had a sleepover. And um, during the night, uh, the mother of one of the girls at the house came down to check on them and found them missing from their bed. So she, obviously she was terribly alarmed. She called the police. Uh, they searched all over and couldn't find them. And the next in the morning or, or hours later, the girls turned up back in their beds. And later they remembered seeing a, a, you know, a, a spaceship land outside their window and having had some kind of an abduction experience. Now, here's a case where... Uh, you know, the, the, they reported this experience later, um, uh, but the mother uh, said, confirmed a part of it by saying she found the girls missing. Now that's really intriguing. Now, not in every, in, uh, in some cases, um, people weren't physically missing. Uh, there was another story that came up um, at a conference that Mac attended of a woman who fainted in her husband's arms. And while he was holding her, she had the experience of being transported up into the sky by some kind of a alien intelligence and, and flying around and, and seeing certain things and then coming back to her body and her husband was holding her the whole time. So she wasn't absent uh, for, for that experience. So it, it's complicated. But anyway, um, for, for all the reasons I said, Mac believed that um, there was every reason to credit the stories of these people as, as, as real to them, certainly. And no other, no other way to explain these stories. In all the, you know, the accounts by skeptics and you know, debunkers that have, have uh, emerged since then, nobody has come up with a good explanation. It remains mysterious. Um, um, so at least Max said, look, I can't explain it, but I can't uh, credit any other explanation either. So that's where we are. And if this is a spoiler alert to my book, I'm happy to admit it that I don't solve the mystery, but it is a mystery. Right. 
Now, during this time, wasn't he it, around the point where he started to become interested in this? Uh, I, don't, I don't. What was the catalyst, or what was the point when when he first became like, "Aha! I, I you know I need to look into this more." Was it one person that came to him? Um, I know this was around the same time that he started to experiment with uh, like certain holotropic breathing exercises and, and meditation and psychedelic drugs, right? Yeah. Well, I trace the, the process in, in my book. Uh, it's interesting because, uh, as I said, early in his career, he was very well uh, grounded in, on right. the earth. I mean, he uh, protested nuclear weapons. He got active in Middle East and peace efforts because of his knowledge of uh, the Middle East and Lawrence of Arabia. He actually met with Yasser Arafat uh, to, you know, try to uh, help advance peace efforts. Um, and then um, uh, a series of things occur happened that pushed him in a new direction. So one of them was um, he went off to Esalen, which is this think tank on the Pacific, you know, where they were experimenting in the 60s with, with drugs and with uh, alternate forms of consciousness and uh, it was very cutting edge and, uh, you know, very, very 60s. And, um, and, and while there, he met a, a, a um, psychiatrist from Czechoslovakia named Stanislav Graf, uh, who had uh, pioneered um, a form of uh, breathing that changed your, that, that able to move, was able to move people into, into a new level of consciousness like drugs, but without drugs. It was called holotropic breathing. It was rhythmic breathing uh, to music. Um, and uh, it had the effect of uh, inducing kind of a, almost like a trance that, that enabled people to transcend their normal consciousness, okay? So John Mack tried this and um, he, he found himself actually carried back to a childhood memory of being um, in the womb. Um, this is, his mother was the woman who, who died in six, eight and a half months after he was born of, of appendicitis. But he, he recalled or thought he recalled her struggles to give him life. And um, um, it all came back to him, he said later. Um, and he also had a memory or he, he thought it was a memory of being a Russian peasant in the, in the 16th or 17th century and watching his son being decapitated by a Mongol warrior, um, wherever that came from. So anyway, he came back from this holotropic breathing exercise and he was amazed that, uh, I mean, he was a psychiatrist, so he knew the processes of the mind or thought he did. And here was some new frontier uh, that he was you know, learning about where he could uh, alter his consciousness and, uh, and sort of uh, catapult himself into, into other, other levels of consciousness and uh, memories or realities, whatever. Mm -hmm. So that, that kind of set the stage. So then um, uh, at one of these conferences with Stanislav Graf, he met a fellow psychiatrist, um, and uh, her name was Blanche Chavusti. And she told him she had a patient who thought she had been abducted by alien beings. And 
uh, or she had these experiences that the psychiatrist thought were a signpost of abduction. The woman didn't quite understand what these experiences were. Anyway, she told John Mack about this and he was pretty skeptical. He, he wasn't there yet. And he said, uh, you know, it, it sounded kind of crazy to him. And she said, by the way, I have a friend in New York uh, who's studying all this. His name is Bud Hopkins. Uh, he's an artist and uh, he has a lot of people he's uh, hypnotizing uh, who have these experiences of abduction. Would you like to meet him? And John Mack said, no, <laughs> uh, sounds crazy. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, one of the strange things in life, you know, the, the story is full of synchronicities and uh, with me included. Um, so he's in New York in 1990, visiting a friend of his, Bob Lifton, the famous uh, psychiatrist who uh, wrote about Nazi uh, doctors and Hiroshima, Nagasaki, very eminent colleague. And John Mack is visiting um, um, Bob Lifton in New York. And he suddenly remembers a Bud Hopkins is living nearby. And I, I had an introduction to him. Should I call him? So this is very strange. He says to, to um, uh, Lifton and his wife, uh, you know, I might just call Bud Hopkins because he's interested in this alien abduction stuff, I might call him. And by the way, uh, Max said, I know Bob Lifton, that you know Bud Hopkins from Cape Cod, because you guys both have houses there. Um, um, Bob Lifton, uh, I mean, like many psychiatrists, had a getaway in the, in, the, in on Cape Cod, Wellfleet, where psychiatrists go in the summer, which is why you can't get analyzed <laughs> in August. <laughs> uh, and um, and Bud Hopkins had a studio near Wellfleet. So he said, I, I know you know this Bud Hopkins, would you like to come with me? And, and this is the, the good part, Lip, uh, Lifton's wife then, BJ speaks up and says, no, because Bob has a choice about getting involved in this and you don't. Whoa, now I heard this, uh, I think I heard this from Lifton, anyway. Uh, this was an amazing story because here's the wife who are, sees this whole thing already happening. She sees John Mack getting involved in abduction before John Mack even saw it. She had this flash of insight and she was going to save her husband from getting involved in this. Turns out that Bob... Uh, um, uh, knew more a lot about abduction, it turns out. Um, but anyway, um, Lifton had, had done some of his own research, but that came out later. Anyway, John Mack goes alone to Bud Hopkins' house. Hopkins is an artist. He's got this great studio, townhouse in Chelsea on the west side, and hung with his sculptures. Uh, he... he uh, Hopkins was a very good artist, by the way. Uh, he'd been, he, some of his work is in museums, uh, a well-recognized really? artist. And he, he did these flat sculptures, non-objective sculptures, uh, very sort of brightly colored but ominous forms he called his guardians, wherever that came from. So, so Mac visits Hopkins and Hopkins already got tipped off from his friend, Blanche, that 
you know, John Mack, eminent psychiatrist, is interested in talking to you. So Hopkins hands Mack a sheaf of letters that he got from the people he had talked to about abduction. And I should say that Bud Hopkins had already written two books, at least two books on abduction. Uh, the first one, Missing Time, long before John Mack got interested in the field, was about this uh, very strange uh, aspect of, of the abduction stories, uh, which was that people who, who uh, re remembered afterwards being abducted lost track of time. And they arrived at their destination much later than they expected, and they didn't know what happened in the intervening time. And later, under hypnosis, let's say, they were able to recall things they they forgot or where their memories have been wiped clean, which seems to be another hallmark of this phenomenon that the alien beings, uh, if you believe their stories of the, the people, uh, wipe out the memory of what happened to, to the people. So Hopkins had written this book and he'd heard from a lot of people afterwards. So he had these letters and he said to John, here, you, you look at these letters, you're the psychiatrist, you tell me. So Mac went away, read the letters. He, he actually was off on a trip to, um, to um, Czechoslovakia uh, right after that. So he didn't get to it immediately. And I tell the story in my book, um, but he got to the letters not long afterwards and he was amazed because these people were talking about these uh, incredible experiences that couldn't be true. And yet they were so detailed so that's what, got, what started him off. He then, you know, uh, collected his own circle of people with the, it wasn't hard to find through Bud Hopkins and others, uh, men, women, cross-section of people who reported these experiences, having, seeing a spacecraft, having, a, you know, encounters with these beings, being abducted on the spacecraft, having medical experiments performed on them, all kinds of things. So that's what got him started. And the stories he heard were just astounding. And, um, um, and so that was 1990. And in less than two years, he was lecturing to Harvard on the phenomenon, which uh, was probably too soon. But um, it, he, he, he hit the ground running. How many people uh, throughout his career did he interview uh, that claimed to be abductees? And, uh, in your it, mind, which which ones are the most incredible? Oh, well, he interviewed several hundred. I'll tell you this, that John Mack's first book, Abduction, Human Encounters with Aliens, which came out in 1994, which got him into trouble at Harvard. And I can tell you that story. But uh, that book uh, is really is a compendium of 13 case studies. OK, 13 people. Um, who had these stories of encounters with aliens. Um, and they are fantastic. I mean, they are so amazing, uh, more complicated and more uh, with more twists and turns than you could ever imagine. Very well recounted by, by John Mack, like, like, just like a psychiatrist would, who whose business is, you know, recounting uh, case histories. He talks about their childhood background, you know, all the, the events in their lives that led up to this. So in other words, he, he dissects their stories. And then he tells their stories, uh, the stories that they told him uh, with his insights. 
Um, and uh, it, it's really a, a totally remarkable book because um, each of these stories is, is different. This is what actually was so convincing to him. The stories are all different in myriad details, but they're basically consistent that they see a spacecraft somewhere, that they next remember seeing alien creatures of different kinds. Uh, they are then on, on the ship subject to various procedures uh, and that they are then released. Sometimes they have a scar afterwards of some procedure that healed quickly. They don't remember having, you know, where the scar came from. Some people felt that they had implants put into their bodies so they could be tracked later. So in other words, the, the stories were basically consistent because they had a lot of common elements, but they were different in thousands of little details. So it's not like they all agreed on, we're going to all tell this one story. This is the story. It wasn't like that. Some people, um, uh, had minimal or no contact with, with spaceships. Uh, they just encountered beings. Um, as I said, a lot of variation and details. You, you would think to yourself, and John Mack certainly thought, you couldn't make this stuff up. Besides which, the people who told him these stories, and this was another factor that influenced him into, into believing that they, on some level they were telling the truth, in recounting the stories, they went through all the, the trauma of the experience. They wept, they cried, they screamed, they cursed, they thrashed about. Um, and he said, they couldn't be making this up. I mean, people fabricating a story are not that good actors that they can um, you know, um, convey this level of fear and, and disgust and you know, all the emotions they had anyway. Um, so these 13 cases um, in the book, each one is different. Each one is, is amazing. Um, I mean, if I had to think of some of the stories, I, I see I interviewed uh, in quite a number of, of John Max people afterwards. The, the, uh, the people in the book are given pseudonyms to protect their identity all, some of them, all the 13 i believe none of them identified by their real names uh, at their at their request but some of them came out afterwards pretty some pretty quickly afterwards because they appeared with john mack under their real names um so uh, quite a number of them uh identified themselves afterwards as as the sub uh, the, you know the person in the story um and others I was able to identify and talk to them and they confirmed their identities. Um, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of, you know, uh, um, there was one, one guy, um, he, he's called Scott in the book, his real name is Randy. Uh, he ended up later uh, making a, a film documentary of an encounter uh, of an incident at uh, a school in in Zimbabwe, in Zimbabwe, uh, Southern Africa, where a, a ship, the children reported a ship landing and aliens emerging from the ship, and the, the children uh, interacting with these two beings. Well, I'll tell you that story later. But anyway, so uh, Randy, 
Nickerson, um, who, who later made that documentary, uh, was one of the first people Mac uh, interviewed, his stories told in the book. And he, um, you know, remembered being um, playing in the backyard and, and seeing these big ants, he called them. Um, and, um, uh, and then they put something in his, uh, in his head, in his brain, and he passed out. Uh, kind of, they had a, kind of a wand, which you hear in other stories. Um, and, um, um, you know, and many details, but. Um, this was in Zimbabwe? No. <laughs> oh, okay, 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 okay. He, he made a documentary later about an incident in Zimbabwe. We'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, this is when he was a child and when he was talking to John Mack. He was one of John Mack's first um, subjects of patients. Nobody could ever figure out whether John Mack was talking to them as, uh, as patients because they weren't suffering from anything except their experiences. They, they weren't like, uh, they didn't have a real, tra- they didn't have... <laughs> A real reason to be a patient, except for these stories. Uh, so they, uh, they they didn't want to call them patients. Um, so subjects suggest that they were research subjects for John Mack. Anyway, we could just call them people who came to John Mack, but Randy was one of them. Okay, and Randy found a specific interest in the this Zimbabwe. Well, the reason I ask is because some of these experiences or some of these uh, you know abduction experiences that people talk to him about have more concrete evidence than others if it comes to physical scars or if it comes to actual eyewitnesses um in your mind which ones which accounts are the most credible okay so here's a case that um became very famous in its own right um and uh, that Bud Hopkins investigated and told John Mack about, um, and, and it was actually a book by, by Bud Hopkins called Witnessed. And uh, this is a story. Um, um, two security guards, they call themselves police officers, but let's say security guards uh, were escorting a VIP uh, in downtown Manhattan. Uh, in November 89, I believe. And uh, the car suddenly came to a stop and the security guards got out and they saw a spacecraft approaching an 11 story building near the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, They saw a a woman, a figure of a woman um, fly out of the window surrounded by three alien creatures all flying in the sky. They escorted her into the spaceship and it flew off and plunged into the East River. Okay. So, um, um, you know, telling this story, it's very difficult to tell the story without the all the background or nuances, but this is a case that, as I say, became known as the Brooklyn Bridge abduction. Um, and, and John Mack spent a lot of time on it uh, and uh, because he was so intrigued by it. It wasn't his case, it was Bud Hopkins' case. Anyway, the woman, 
uh, Leda came forward uh, herself and, con and co contacted Bud Hopkins, which is really how, how the story started. And, um, and Bud Hopkins found some witnesses who said they, they, they were stuck on the Brooklyn Bridge when all traffic came to a stop, uh, the power went out, uh, they saw this woman, you know, flying out of the window into the spacecraft. And um, um, anyway, um, and I tell the story in my book, really, I go over the story. And the, the thing is, the story was, was uh, told to Bud Hopkins by the woman who said she was the, the target of the abduction. And, uh, and, and it was also told by, by these two security guards who said they witnessed it, who were driving down in lower Manhattan and whose car was stopped. And they sent Bud Hopkins a bunch of uh, messages and letters and tapes. Uh, but the bottom line is that Bud Hopkins was never able to identify the two of them. Um, they, they, uh, he, he, he got their names, uh, but he, he never could find them. And because he never could find them, and this is, the, this is the problem so often in these stories, and this is why we've been so meticulous at the New York Times in sticking to things that we can confirm with named sources. This is a case, the perfect you know, example, um, that without, the, 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 without knowing who these two uh, witnesses were or, or having them face to face, telling their stories, um, the story became impossible to verify. The woman said, yeah, I was the one I was abducted. Um, and people said, or some people said, yeah, they saw this woman come out of the window. But uh, the two security guards who were the best witness who came from uh, and the, uh, uh, the closest witnesses, shall we say, to this could never be identified. And in fact, took some effort to remain unidentified. So the story basically collapsed. Um, it's intriguing, but it, it, like so many of the abduction stories, there's something missing. That is the, the hallmark of this phenomenon, Danny, is that none of them uh, can produce the smoking gun that would convert uh, skeptics, um, scientists, etc. That's not an accident. That is part of the phenomenon. Somehow this, whatever this is, doesn't want to be found out or can't be found out. Uh, there's a lot of intriguing signs pointing to these cases. And as I said, there's fragmentary evidence, all of which convinced John Mack that there was something to this, you know, the affinity with UFOs outside the window, the broken tree branches, the third-party witnesses, the young children, the the um, emotion that the people had when they recounted all these things, the, the the scars afterwards, all these little bits of evidence pointed to something, to the reality of these events, and yet there was something, of course, missing, which is the absolute confirmation that they occurred in reality. There's right. no photographs, there's no video, there's no, and you know, you say, well, why isn't there? Well, that's a good question. Why isn't there? There is video, by the way, of UFOs, because they came out, we saw the Navy videos, 
there's definitely uh, photographic and video evidence confirming the physical existence of these objects. But that's all you can say. There's no connection to aliens or abduction or any, anything else. Uh, it, that, 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 we don't know. It doesn't exist. We don't have that. So all we can say is that, yeah, UFOs physically exist. We don't know where they come from. We don't know what intelligence is, is behind the wheel. Uh, um, as far as alien abduction, we know people have told stories. We have some fragmentary confirmation in different pieces, but nothing like the Navy videos of right. UFOs. So that's the leap. And that's why at the New York Times, we haven't reported on alien abduction. We've reported on UFOs. Right. Out of all of the people that criticized John Mack, including, you know, I don't know if you would call it criticism, but, you know, whatever he had to go through with Harvard, you know, tight turning the screws on him for his research and what he was doing. What were his bit, biggest critics theories or like his biggest critics? What did they say to sort of dismiss what he was doing or what the people he was talking to were saying? Good question. I, I, I've heard about things like implanted memories in hypnosis you know it's possible to implant false memories i know that's part of it but yeah uh that's a very good question well first of all um what you offer what, what critics said including susan clancy who wrote a book about it um put a lot of stock in uh sleep paralysis that it's very it's a very common uh ailment or phenomenon that uh, people during the night feel paralyzed and uh, can have hallucinations of uh, various malign creatures. Um, and uh, it's uh, physiologically, you know, the, 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 there's, there's something interrupting sleep patterns and, uh, the, you know, the brain uh, operates differently and thinks that these events are real. Um, so that was one theory. Um, um, another theory is that um, the hypnotist was um, implanting these suggestions uh, in, in the people, uh, basically. Uh, and there was actually one interesting um, experiment that, that a skeptic did where he um, uh, collected a bunch of people and asked them to imagine an abduction experience. Just imagine it and, and in all its detail. And, and they did. And the imagined experiences seemed, um, in some cases, rather like the actual experiences. In other words, they just made it up and it turned out to be, oh, sounded like some of the other experiences. Um, and I'll talk about why these all fall short of a good explanation in a minute, but um, um, let's see, uh, what are some of the other, uh, other explanations that these, that people had suffered a trauma, like a rape or attempted rape, and afterwards they transferred this memory to an alien abduction memory, um, but it was based on some real trauma that they had and it was just put in a different context, maybe to shield the 
accuser that the, the truth was too awful to believe, let's say a parent was abusing a child and the, the, the child wouldn't, couldn't, you know, deal with that. So it made it into an alien. Uh, so that was, you know, another uh, attempt to explain these experiences. The problem is, I have looked into these in great detail. And there were whole conferences that were held with experts. And I can tell you about one of those in a minute, where people actually looked for other explanations. Um, so first of all, the sleep uh, paralysis explanation, which is very common. And by the way, uh, the, the so-called skeptics, uh, the debunkers, a lot of them have not done their homework. Uh, in order, if, if you're going to get into this field, and you want to expose, uh, you know, uh, the um, charlatanism or whatever you think is going on here, at least you've got to know the, the field well enough to know the claims so that you can expose them. A lot of the skeptics have not done the homework. They have not read the cases. They don't know enough about the actual phenomenon and, and, and the, the um, scope of it and the details of it in order to debunk it properly, because I would guess they can't. So they'll choose one thing and they'll, they'll ride that. So for example, sleep paralysis. Um, so as I said, yes, there, uh, it is, a, it is a, an actual phenomenon where people uh, uh, experience helplessness. They can't move. They feel they're paralyzed. They are often in, 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 uh, in the course of a terrible nightmare etc. But some of these experiences, a good number of them that John Mack investigated and others, were not at night. There were people driving their cars. So they weren't sleeping in their cars, driving and having a nightmare. Um, um, uh, yeah, like the Travis Walton one, for example, is a, is a great example of that. Well, that now somebody has come forward now and that's been, you know, uh, challenged, but he is sticking to his story. That's an interesting case. But um, um, is he being challenged now? Is this new? I saw. Yeah, yeah. Somebody said that they faked it, and one one of the people, I guess, uh, um, who was in one of his the guys who was with him at the time he disappeared said that we we staged it. I, I don't know. It didn't it didn't make a lot of sense um, because again, if somebody comes up with that claim, you have to then go back and see all the other things that supported the story in the first place. So, um, but let me just continue with the idea of the implanted memories. So, um, so that was one, one common theory was, yeah, that the, the hypnotists implant these memories in the people by leading them. Uh, well, first of all, uh, not all these stories emerge during hypnosis. John Mack used hypnosis and modified relaxation techniques uh, to draw out memories that were hidden or concealed, because as I said, one uh, hallmark of this phenomenon is that um, people's memories have been either wiped or clouded by whatever happened to them. <coughs> so one way to get at that, and that's the, the um, really the key to the Betty and Bonnie Hill abduction case. It's the first big abduction case in New Hampshire in 19, it happened in 1961. It uh, only became public uh, four years later. Anyway, um, so um, um, psychiatrists have concluded 
researchers have concluded the only way to get at these memories is through hypnosis. So, and by extension, critics were saying, yeah, the hypnotist then implants these memories that are then taken as the account of something real that happened. Well, first of all, a lot of these experiences were, were described without regard to hypnosis. People had enough memory of what happened to uh, recall or think they could recall at least the outlines of it. So they weren't implanted by the hip. There were no hypnotists at, at various stages of this. Um, and uh, the idea, if once you read through the case studies, uh, as in the 13 cases that John Mack wrote about in abduction, uh, you could you would have a great difficulty in imagining that a hypnotist could provide this level of detail to these 13 very different stories. I mean, right. what kind of an imagination would you need to have mm -hmm. to implant these stories in somebody? I, I yeah. ask you, read these 13 case studies and say, oh yeah, the psychiatrist knew all these details and implanted it in the person. And then the person sort of regurg regurgitated it back. Not possible remotely. Um, where, wherever these stories came from, you cannot imagine that they came from somebody who was implanting them in these people mm. uh, because they are so bizarre and so one of a kind and so unimaginable, unimaginable that um, you could not, in fairness, conclude that they were given to the person to then feedback. Okay. Um, well, real, real quick, I want to interrupt you for a second. Yeah. The interesting thing to me about the sleep paralysis part of it is that by and large, most of the sleep paralysis stories are people being feeling paralyzed and dealing with some sort of terrifying being that want that has mal intent, right. right? Like something that's choking them to death or trying to, to kill them. But in the, I don't know if it's all of them, but at least all of the abduction stories I've heard, the beings that they're that they're um, having this interaction with do not have this malintent. They're simply just doing, you know, taking samples or trying to communicate something to them. Like that's a very good point. That's a very good point. That um, there is a difference. Um, one of the books I talk about uh, early on in my book, The Believer, is, is a book called The Terror uh, That Comes in the Night about, uh, by a psychiatrist who, um, a psychologist who um, investigated what they call the old hag syndrome, particularly in Newfoundland. There were a lot of people who had stories of being paralyzed during the night, feeling a malign presence, a stinking, horrible you know, evil, evil presence climb up on their bed and strangle them. And it was so vivid and so uh, clear. Um, and many, many people had this uh, and told the author, David Hoffman, I believe. Um, and, um, and, um, um, and he investigated that and, and he, the author, uh, had it happen to him. He himself 
had experienced this as a student. Uh, he remembered the exact same thing. He was in his room. He, he, he was drifted off to sleep, uh, his college room. He felt the door open. He thought it was one of his roommates calling him to dinner. Next thing he knew, this stinking, horrible thing climbed on his bed and was choking him. And he was paralyzed. He couldn't turn on the light. And then uh, it, it somehow it left and he turned on the light and he ran outside to the uh, dorm uh, counselor or somebody who was uh, the landlord. He said, did you just see somebody running here? I said, no. So anyway, he himself had experienced this. But as you say, that's a rather different experience. Uh, these, these beings, whatever they are in, in the abduction stories, were not strangling people. Um, they were uh, imparting information. They were seeking DNA, perhaps. Uh, they were, one of the things we didn't talk about yet, but that it's very much a part of the John Mack story is that a lot of people told John Mack that the beings communicated with them uh, telepathically because that was another thing. You mean, you mean they spoke English? No, they didn't speak English. I got the messages in my brain. Uh, I just heard the words or saw the words and they were telling me that the planet is in danger and um, uh, you know, humans have to you know, get their act together and stop polluting the planet. And, and in some cases, the message is, this is what happened to us, the aliens on our planet. And that's why you know, we are able to warn you. Anyway, but it, it's a very different experience from the strangulation stories of the... Um, you know, the, 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 the terror that comes in the night, the old hag syndrome or so. Mm -hmm. So, so what are we to draw from this? Well, first of all, there's a whole kind of anomalous experiences that seem to operate in a world that we don't recognize. Another reality that penetrates our world, as John Mack said, somehow, uh, in ways we can't explain. We have a clear idea of reality. We think we do. Reality is what you can see, smell, taste, and touch. Knock on the table, feel it. But what about all these other things that um, may be out there, other dimensions that, uh, you know, we're, we're a young species as, as human beings. We don't understand. Our science is young, a few thousand years old. We don't understand everything. Uh, so maybe there's other you know, dimensions, aspects to the universe that we don't understand. Um, so, um, and, and this is, uh, this really came up in the Harvard investigation. Uh, when Harvard cracked down on John Mack and said, you know, you're, you're very bad, uh, you know, you're making us look bad, um, in effect. Uh, and they said, we have to investigate your your methodology, are you really proceeding scientifically? And John Mack said, well, what is that? <laughs> I mean, what is scientists, you know, there's no rules uh, for science, you know, you, you know, you, you follow the scientific method more, you know, but um, all the great breakthroughs in science came in unconventional ways, you know, that unexpectedly. Um, yeah, yeah. Why, why is that? That so many institutes, so many of the the academic types in places like Harvard are are so quick to dismiss these types of topics. Like I've had this conversation with Avi Loeb, uh, the, the Harvard <laughs> astrophysicist who discovered the Muamua, that he thinks was from an, another uh, intelligent civilization. <laughs> 
And some of his astrophysicist colleagues at Harvard would say to him, they, they hope to God they never witness anything like this or never come across any sort of extraterrestrial thing in their entire career. And it's just like, it seems so, it seems like such a, an interesting right. thing. Why these people are so easy to dismiss. Well, listen, first of all, as I say in my book, um, Harvard is no stranger to um, uh, unconventional science. Uh, William James, the father of psychology, who taught at Harvard a hundred years before Mac, um, you know, investigated seances and levitation and all that. Um, so, um, and there was a lot of unconventional research going on at Harvard. There, there was, and there, there is. Um, what turned Harvard off, I think, was Mac was, um, uh, uh, he, well, first of all, he'd written a bestseller, <laughs> and that didn't endear him to his colleague. He'd written a best, he won the Pulitzer Prize on, right. on Lawrence of Arabia. Um, jealousy? Yeah, there was jealousy there. Uh, he was a very, he was very sure of himself. I think he he turned some people off in the way he was so sure of himself. I think he talked to uh, he he um, announced his research at Harvard uh, before uh, it was really well advanced. Uh, he had heard about the phenomenon from Bud Hopkins. He had collected his circle of experiencers, which is what he called them, rather than abductees because it's less a judgmental term. Uh, and he had he begun his research. Um, he learned about it from Bud Hawkins in um, January 1990. In December 91, he held a grand rounds, a lecture at Harvard. So less than two years later, uh, where he introduced some of the experiencers on stage. He uh, he had a tape of a session where a woman was screaming that her pregnancy was removed. Um, uh, he outlined, you know, everything he had found out. Um, so I, you know, again, I don't, he didn't, hadn't given it enough time. He didn't realize the opposition that was going to build at Harvard because it was very unconventional research. He didn't lay the groundwork for that. Um, you know, he didn't peer publish. It wasn't entirely his fault. He tried, but his articles were rejected because they were too complicated and uh, one, one publisher in the Journal of Psychology wanted more information and shorter. <laughs> hmm. He wrote a hundred page paper on what he had found. Uh, this is before his first book. Uh, and he, he, you know, he, he brought up his findings, a hundred pages. He sent it to the journal, said, we can't run this. It's much too long. But by the way, could you add some more detail? <laughs> so they had him. And he said, I can't add more detail and I need all this space to and forget it. So he, he took it away. And um, the New England Journal of Medicine wasn't interested. They wouldn't even open up his envelope. Um, so uh, look, it, it was a difficult subject uh, to address, period. And it probably needed a book. An article wouldn't do it. It needed a book. So anyway, um, um, you know, I, I, um, we're talking about Harvard. And so, you know, you ask Abby Loeb why Harvard was, uh, has been so antagonistic. Uh, I don't, I'm going to be on with him in the next couple of days on another program. And I'm going to ask him, um, you know, what his experience at Harvard has been like. Because in Max's case, they, they gave him, you know, uh, time 
to, to uh, I guess you could say, gave him, gave him enough rope. <laughs> and then they, they try to hang him with it. Um, uh, but um, they cracked down on him in 1994, about the time his book was published. So he had given that big lecture to Harvard in December in 91. So in December 91. So uh, two, three, four. So, you know, three years um two years later uh, they were on his case uh um but it, you know it's an interesting story about the harvard investigation because it was as 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 mac himself wrote in an unpublished manuscript it was a clash of worldviews uh, he was trying to uh, explain look i came across this mystery i don't know what the answer is to it but it doesn't respond to the usual um, scientific, the ability to, to get to the bottom of it. I mean, we, we can't, we don't have any scientific proof of it, but we can't um, contradict it either. We, 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 we can't figure out what's going on here. And Harvard's answer basically was, well, if you can't prove it scientifically, you can't, it, it's not there. And he was saying, well, there's something there, but I can't explain. Yeah, exactly. You can't explain it. So it's not there. So that that basically was the clash at Harvard. There were two different worldviews. One is the scientific materialism of, of the Harvard committee, led by a critic of, of John Mack, who we had clashed with once before, uh, Arnold Relman, very eminent um, physician. Um, and, and Mack, who was saying, well, I, I can't explain it, but this is what the people are telling me and it's and it's good evidence it's good compelling evidence but it's anecdotal in most cases almost every case there's fragmentary um, bits of evidence that seem to back it up but not conclusively so i don't know you know on and on and the committee kept saying well if you can't prove it it's not there um so anyway that was the clash at Harvard. But in, in the end, Mac was exonerated. He had two wonderful lawyers um, that exposed Harvard's um, weak arguments, I would say. And uh, he would basically he was reinstated. Uh, he was never he was never uninstated. He was uh, allowed to continue his research. Uh, no sanctions. They just said, please be a little more uh, be less enthusiastic. They said to him, and he said, okay, you're right. <laughs> I was a little too enthusiastic. Uh, I'll be less enthusiastic. Because um, he acknowledged it. He was, um, that was one of, one of the hallmarks of his nature was to be, um, he didn't hold back. What he thought you could see in his writings, he was not devious. Um, even in his, uh, even in his um, love affairs, a few of it, you know, outside his marriage, uh, he didn't, you know, sneak around his wife. She knew what was going on. He was just attracted to other women searching for this missing thing in his life. And um, he remained devoted to her. They had a good relationship, uh, you know, difficult, but good at, at the end of his life when he died. But um, he was not the, a sneaky guy. Uh, what he was thinking, you could see in his writings and his speeches, etc. So, um, and that had a, a downside too. He wasn't very careful in, in how he structured his 
his approach. And he might have gotten further at Harvard um, if he'd been, um, I don't know, a little, uh, you know, a little less enthusiastic, a little right. more cautious. But in a, in a way, that was his that was his nature. Right. Well, it's fascinating, Ralph. I I, I really appreciate your time. I know we're uh, we're out of time now, but um, I, I thank you so much for uh, for doing this and sharing this, your story with me. And uh, let the people listening and or watching where they can find more of your work if they're interested and buy your book. Okay. So my book is called The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. Uh, it's available everywhere. Um, uh, Amazon, independent bookstores, Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's available um, as an ebook. Uh, it's available uh, as an audio book. Um, and um, um, as I said, independent bookstores, if they don't have it in stock, we'll, we'll get it for you. I would love to support independent bookstores because they've been very good to me uh, and they're great. Um, uh, all the information is on my website, Ralph Blumenthal, B-L-U-M-E-N-T-H-A-L.com, ralphblumenthal.com. Um, and um, uh, has a bio, my work at the New York Times, et cetera. So that's how they can find out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ralph. One more uh, sort of personal greedy question. I, I, I've always wanted to ask someone like you who's had, you know, the amount of experience you have being in, uh, in publishing and investigative journalism, especially working with a company like the New York Times for decades. What is the best strategy for coming up with headlines? Because I do so many of these talks and they're all published on the internet and I can never figure out the right formula for a headline. Wow. That's a good question. Well, you know what, when I teach journalism, um, I tell my students that poetry uh, is a wonderful exercise among, among other things. It's enjoyable, of course, in its own right, um, in compressing language with a headline, you've got to compress the story and make every word count. And poetry, more than prose, obviously every word has to count uh, multiple times in terms of you know, impact and power. Um, and in prose, you have a lot of leeway, you can throw in extra words. You can't do that in a headline, you can't do that in poetry. Uh, so you have to get at the essence of it. And it's almost like a Zen thing. You've got to think, what is the, 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 core, the, the core point that I'm, I'm trying to convey here? Um, and even if, and, 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 and don't try to tell the whole story in the headline, because that's the formula for disaster. You get much too complicated. You have to zero in on the one point, um, that is, uh, is, is the essence of it. So, um, it's almost like you have to wipe away, wipe out everything you know about a subject and think about the, the one thing that comes to mind when you first hear about it, you know, what is the question in everybody's mind or what's the one word or one phrase that will make that come alive. But what you're asking really is, is it's the hardest thing. You know, how do you come up with a good idea or where, you know, how do you, how do you, um, how do you sell it? Uh, right. Cause you spend how do you so, sell you, it? You spend so much it. time into this thing. Yeah. You could just make uh, something to fall flat without the right headline. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and again, you, you, you still have to, you know, remain faithful to the truth. You can't uh, take liberties and say, you know, sex 
Yeah, and then my real story is about UFOs. No, it's about UFOs. Right, right. You you can't play games with a reader or a viewer um, because they they notice it right away that you know you're you're not um, you know you 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 are playing games. So Mm -hmm. it's tricky. But um, and sometimes it helps in, in, to do it in a group. So you bounce headlines off each other and say, what about this? And someone else will have an idea. But it's, it's difficult. I find that. I mean, I do that all the time when I work with journalism students. I come up with headlines for their, their newspapers. And um, um, uh, as I say, it's, it's almost like you have to not think about what you know and, and try to think about it fresh. Like how would somebody come to this who doesn't know anything about the subject? What is the one thing that they want to know? Or what, what's the one thing that will come to mind when you bring up this subject? Um, I'm doing a talk at my college, at Baruch College, uh, next week uh, on UFOs. And um, I'm calling it, Can You Believe It? Uh, you know, UFO reporting, you know, uh, the, re- the recent UFO stories. Um, that just seemed to encapsulate, and you can read that two different ways. Can you believe it? Or like, can you believe it? Right. So, you know, uh, and that just sort of came to me. As I said, uh, experience helps, you know, but, um, and also be a, be a reader of the tabloids because the tabloids have the greatest headlines. They really do. Uh, yeah. I mean, headless body and topless bar, uh, you know. <laughs> wow, I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, it's the New York Post headline, very famous, headless body and topless bar. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, so that, that was a brilliant one. Um, so um, anyway, uh, but that, that, that comes with experience and uh, it's trial and error. And sometimes you think you have it and... Um, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, you think you have it and then you say, oh, that was in bad taste or that didn't do it. Or you, uh, the important thing is not to, to err on the, on the side of making a terrible mistake, because um, if you uh, have an unintended double entendre where you, you know, malign somebody or introduce, a, you know, a taboo subject or something, then, then you really hurt yourself. So. You always have to remain within the bounds of good taste, um, right. you know, and that kind of thing. But and don't, in other words, don't take a shortcut just to be clever uh, if it's going to subject you to criticism. So uh, right. uh, t- try to err on the side, you know, even if it's a little duller, try to err on the side of caution. Right. And don't piss than, off anyone that was involved. Yeah. In don't don't, you know, cross the line. Put it that way. Right. All right. Well, that's very helpful. For- very helpful information, Ralph. I, I very much appreciate your time. You're very kind. And uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be in touch, be able to do this again in the future. Okay. It was great being on with you, Danny. Thank you. Thank you.